You're listening to The Only Constant, a podcast about active hope. In today's conversation, we spoke with Cole Carrier. Having served as a student senator and chair of the Judiciary Committee at Florida State University, it's clear that Cole is focused on improving the world around him through policy and reform. My entire life, we've had these luxuries, and so the fact that now we're kind of going backwards, I feel like our generation is really going to push back. Within student government, there is very, very strong support for trans people, which is very good to know because people on both sides of the aisle are, are really against the recent actions of the governor. Cole provided us a look into how young progressive minds are encouraging people to be both authentic and understanding and willing to defend that. Hopefully, you find some hope today. Hello. And welcome to the first episode of season four. I am so excited for today. Um, thank you for coming on and joining Ted and I. Uh, thank this you. really means a lot to us. I would love to start out with your name and your pronouns. So my name is Cole Carrier, and my pronouns are he, him, his. Okay, cool. Um, and prior to coming on the show today, you sent us a list of things that you were passionate about, and we would love to focus on those things today because as Ted and I have uh, continued to work on the show, we've continued to narrow down and refine what we think the show can be and what our conversations can focus on. So let's go ahead and dive into student government and Senate and your role in those things. Right. So I was elected to Senate last spring, um, April 2022, Hmm. and I really had no idea what I was getting into. But um, over the summer, I really became close with Pride Student Union, um, Hmm. and that's kind of where I started my advocacy. I got assigned a resolution for Pride Month, and part of that assignment was asking other queer people at Florida State, you know, what is what, where could they see improvement? And one of the biggest things was healthcare. Um, mm. And so I ended up meeting with the University Health Services Administration. I actually brought in an HIV specialist as well to kind of talk about the PrEP and PEP policies. So do you guys know what PrEP and PEP is? Mm-mm, okay, please. so PrEP is uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So that's a pill that you take daily and it prevents HIV um, contraction, almost like 99%. Um, So it's very, very effective. Um, And then PEP is like plan B. So if you feel like you've been exposed, you can take this pill within 72 hours. And the quicker you take it, the more effective it is. But it's also very effective after you've been exposed. And that's post-exposure prophylaxis. So Mm. um, the CDC has guidelines on that, on how uh, you should test for that and there's all kind you have to get blood tests every three months you have to um it's very strict kind of when you're taking this medication Hmm. um and so i wanted to kind of work with university health services to make that in line with cdc guidelines because they weren't um, Hmm. directly in line with that and so one of the things we did was get the florida department of health to come out and give us um and upgraded all of our hiv tests to fourth generation and so what that means is that Usually, whenever you go for for a prep um, consultation, you have to get tested for HIV, and um, those tests sometimes take a week to get back. And so, you know, a week is kind of a long time before you can start receiving medication. And mm-hmm. so, the CDC recommends using fourth generation so you can get it back within 24 hours, so you can immediately um, start prescribing that medication. Yeah. And so that's what we did. We got Florida Department of Health to give um, FSU free. Uh, fourth generation HIV tests and upgraded that. So wow. that was the first big thing I did um, with Senate. And that was honestly like so fun. I didn't even know I had the ability to do that kind of. So, wow. Yeah, that's awesome. That is mm-hmm. really so. So would you consider yourself an advocate? 
Yes. Okay. And so you would say that um, I would just love to know what you think, like, or how you feel your day-to-day responsibilities kind of uh, reflect that, like being an advocate for people. Is it going out all the time and talking to people and uh, acknowledging their concerns and seeing what you can change? I mean, a lot of it is also just um, being informed. And, hmm. um, you know, this past legislative session was a little crazy. Um, the governor requested all of the trans people's, um, trans students' uh, medical records. And yeah. so that yeah. was a huge deal. And as soon as, you know, I, being informed, like part of being an advocate is just being informed by that. So as soon as I got that email, I immediately emailed the director of university health services and um, some other administrators was just like, you know, for the safety of our students, please do not give this information out. And um, we ended up having a meeting with them and Pride Student Union and several other advocates as well. And we were able to um, kind of le- as legally we could legally give them as little information as possible. So, um, mm. so information was released, but it was minimal, very minimal. as minimal as it could be. And I'll also mm. say Florida state really isn't a target for, um, this kind of legislation just because we don't provide many trans services. Like we don't have really any gender affirming care, um, on campus. They refer that out to, um, endocrinologists and stuff. So, mm. um, college is more like a USF who had, they have a trans center and they do every single procedure, um, from, you know, hormone therapy to surgery to, um, even just psychiatric consultations. Um, they just have a very, like, honestly, like good nation and world renowned, um, center for, for trans. Sounds like it. For trans people. And same with UF as well with Shands Hospital. They do a ton of, um, gender affirming care. So those are the main targets of, um, you know, those requests and legislation. So FSU really doesn't have as much to worry about, but I still wanted to you know, put my butt out just yeah. in case, you know, so. I yeah. do have a, a question mm-hmm. because that is pretty recent news and Florida's just kind of going through a, a time right now with some of the legislation. Um, as someone who's part of the queer community, how does that, especially being involved with government, what are some things you've sort of learned from being in student government and dealing with these legal things? but still being part of the queer community. It must be sort of, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of emotion in there. Oh, absolutely. But you have to go through the legal system. Mm. How do you juggle that? I mean, honestly, I think you really do have to separate kind of your the identity and emotions from it sometimes just because it can weigh heavy and a lot of people's mental health is affected by this. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being in student government, it's, it's kind of crazy because our generation as well has kind of had these luxuries for a while. Like when I, gay marriage was legalized when I was like 11. Yeah. So I'm just like my entire life, like just even knowing about like queer people and gay people, like we've had these luxuries. And so the fact that now we're kind of going backwards, I feel like our generation is really going to push back. And so mm. within student government, there is very, very strong support for um, for trans people, which is, you know, very good to know because people on both sides of the aisle are are really against um you know the recent actions of the governor and the legislature so that's awesome yeah i mean that's refreshing to hear mm-hmm. i mean because at least it doesn't feel like um as you were saying like our generation is alone in this uh quote-unquote fight even though it's not coming to blows necessarily but legally speaking mm-hmm. kind of feels that way you know yeah. and the last thing we want to do is go backwards so. right yeah and the administration 
they have their faults for sure, but this is not one of them. They are very, um, you know, pro protecting LGBT students. Um, mm. So anything that we ask of them, they they're extremely accommodating. So, mm. well, I would love to know uh, to that point in it being accommodating, what it's like being with ideally other advocates in student government because you know we're sitting here we're interviewing you and i know that you you know identify yourself as an advocate and you so far you've described wonderful things that you've done for it so far but um does it feel like you are working together with your student government and your student population your student body right to Mm -hmm. make these things happen or does it sometimes feel like it's a one-man show um i would i would say for all the pride things and all the um lgbtq plus um issues it feels very united Mm. everyone's willing to i have students text me and um you want me all the time like i wrote this piece of legislation will you sponsor this or what do you think of this resolution um other senators really are picking up um kind of where i left off too because i'm now out of office so it's cool to Mm. i went to the last senate meeting was cool to see other senators kind of step up and um take over where i left off so Mm. yeah um on that note as well with you know a unified presence for all of these LGBTQ plus issues. I found it really interesting that you said both sides of the aisle are kind of unified on this because we hear so often in the media surrounding the United States that one side feels this way about queer people and one side feels this way. And I don't, it seems like it's not that cut and dry. Um, And I think Maybe our younger generation, that's a really positive thing. So I guess what I'm asking is, you've already kind of said it, but is your experience that most people are just, they want they want gay rights and, 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 and trans rights and all of these things for the most part? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it doesn't really affect anybody. Like having, like, you know, providing gender affirming care at a doctor's office doesn't affect you unless you're seeking that care. Oh, you mean, pe- got you. I understand what you mean. Like yeah. negatively affect people who aren't in that circumstance. That, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So okay. that's kind of like, I feel like the overall vibe of everywhere. It's just kind of like, this is so unnecessary. This isn't impacting anybody except for the people who want the care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and the and also it's framed as like parental rights and um, like protecting children. And most of the people like aren't parents and don't have children that are students. So it's like... I don't know the the way that they're uh, framing the issue. I feel like our people in my generation and people in student government, people at FSU, kind of see through that. Yeah. Um, so, so you just touched on it uh, just now, actually. But you're you're no longer in office. You said no. Really? Okay. So what was that process like? How long are the terms and such? So it's one year term. So okay. yeah, I got inaugurated last spring, and then most people don't serve over the summer um, unless they're here taking classes. So they take a leave of absence. Mm. Um, but I was lucky enough to stay and that's really where I built up my leadership positions. Um, and then I got elected as chair of the judiciary committee, um, which I can talk more about that, um, as well, but, uh, it's the highest ranking committee out of all of them. So you have the Senate president and then the line of succession goes to the pro tempore who's Patrick. Um, (laughs) and then the third person goes, um, the judiciary committee and then it kind of goes down the committee line up, um, with student life being the last. But hmm. yeah, there's five committees and my real function has been just looking over legislation, passing it, pretty boring. But 
we did get to do an investigation and a hear and we did a, an investigative hearing um, this past semester because the director of one of the bureaus and the executive branch um, was not doing his job correctly. Mm. Mm. And yeah. so um, very interesting. Uh, <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. And so that was that was another main function. We also hear impeachments and stuff as well, but it's pretty like, oh, they didn't come to enough meetings, so they have to get impeached. It's just like statutorily like in our rules. It's very kind of mm. a simple process. Um, mm. But as far as that bureau went, that was the Office of Governmental Affairs. And so we paid them $15,000 um, with our budget. And their job is to craft a legislative agenda and lobby on the student body and student government's behalf. Okay. Mm. And so the previous year, um, the director was amazing because a lot of these organizations on campus are still recovering from COVID. So they're trying to build back up membership, build back up their roles and presence on campus. And she did an amazing job. Um, and then a new director got put into office and he had worked for Ron DeSantis um, and had a, a very conservative kind of like work experience. But he promised us during his confirmation, because we confirmed him as Senate, he said that he would not let any of that affect, you know, his role. And, and then it did. Um, okay. And so that was kind of um, one of the issues. But the legislative agenda, which is the big thing that they do that they lobby on, hmm. um, they first gave it to us. And it was crazy. There was no any social things on there. It was like kind of bizarre. Um, just there was a couple bills that like loosely related to college, but nothing really like significant. And so we, as senators, made Pat, mostly the pro tempore Patrick. Um, he made all these amendments to add things onto them. Mm. Um, and then they didn't lobby for them. And that's and they're required to. And so mm. that's when we, um, I ended up taking him to the Supreme Court, suing him, and um, we reached a settlement where he had to resign. Wow. Wow. You know, that's, that's crazy. That's, it's actually awesome because it really sounds like it's kind of a light in a dark time because there's so many weird, intense, extremist policies being passed in the state. And it makes me feel good that if FSU's student government is pushing so hard to sort of hold people accountable like that, and, you know, that's such a buzzword, hold people accountable, but I mean, it's true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, make life easier for people. Mm -hmm. it, it makes me feel better about the future of our government in general. Um, yeah. And, you know, do you think that I've already sort of asked this question, but I'm going to try to, do you think that, you know, our country from what you've seen will sort of shift into another direction as we all get older and, you know, cause you're working with people who probably have an interest in politics. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think just looking at Republican policies recently, it's giving me kind of a lot of hope because they see how powerful we are as a young generation. Mm -hmm. This past election in 2022, the Republicans won the House of Representatives, but not by much. And they were expecting to sweep it. They won by like a couple a couple of seats, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And then this past mayoral election in Chicago, the progressive candidate won. And then um, in Wisconsin, which was like 
I think a couple weeks ago as well, they elected a liberal Supreme Court justice. They have a liberal majority and they're going to overturn their abortion ban. Wow. In Wisconsin. Yeah. That's so cool. And it's all because of youth vote, all because young people are coming out because they're they've had enough. And so the more divisive they're going to become, the more of these like drag queen bans and, um, you know, attacks on the LGBT community, attacks on women's rights that pushes people away. And yeah. mm. so and that's why they're coming for education, because we're young, educated voters and they see that as a threat. They also mm. see TikTok as a threat because that's where a lot of organizi- organizing happens. A lot of information is being spread. So when you look at these attacks on TikTok, you look at these attacks on education. It's for national security. For national security. <laughs> yeah. And Quote unquote. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. even to a certain degree, you know, when you put restrictions on abortion, more um, college women are going to have to drop out of college. That's another attack on education. Like they can't get, they're not going to be educated. So, you know, that's really their goal is to hurt our population in hopes that you know we'll be less educated and not vote um for progressive policies so it's crazy but, but that's it, but it shows that it's work that we're working like we're we're not letting it happen exactly as, as much as we can at the mm-hmm. moment and that that totally ties into what i was going to ask which is if you thought that student government was not only effective but efficient and it seems like from what you're telling me it is because i mean because you listed there was five committees and i know that um I know that student government is much different than, you know, the national government, right? But when it comes to policies and everything, it's like things can get lost in the weeds and deliberation and debates. And it's just like, can we just pass something, right? But it seems like everybody was just like, we're doing this thing now. Yes. No, That's absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. And there's so many routes you can take to um, because there are some processes that are very politicized, like impeachment. Like that is something that we did not want to take. Um because it's just it's just a huge, long, drawn-out process. We wanted results immediately, so that's why we went to the Supreme Court um, when it came to the removal of that director. But I would say, yeah, I mean, we use our time very efficiently. Um, we Most of the work does happen in committees, so we don't have to waste time on the floor with stuff. So if there's an issue with a bill, you know, we're going to take it to committee. We're going to figure it out. Um, mm. And most of the people that are in student government as well are very... Um, willing to work with you outside of the floor as well. So if you have an issue with something that's like, okay, well, let's meet about it. Let's get coffee. Let's, you know, it's all about establishing individual relationships and, and that's how you get things passed and that's how you get work done. So, mm. yeah. Well, what are, what are some of the types of people and students that you see in student government? Because I mean, I know it's, it's an extracurricular activity. It's not like it's a major, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the, some of the, some of the, yeah, fields and stuff and people and fields of interest that you see in student government? So, um, student Senate, I actually represent the college of music. So, um, it's, it's done by college. So, okay. um, and the population of each college, uh, typically sophomores and freshmen are not counted towards the college except for fine arts and music because we're four-year programs. Okay. So mm-hmm. the college of fine arts does count freshmen and sophomores. And so does college of music. Every other college, freshman and sophomore have their own division called undergraduate studies. Okay. So typically only juniors and seniors from those colleges represent um, the colleges. So okay. So those are kind of the backgrounds, but a lot of the recruitment comes from political parties. And so we have two political parties on FSU's campus. We have Forward FSU and Surge FSU. Okay. Um, Forward FSU is the majority party. Um, they are... Uh, 
very neutral towards kind of all things. They allow both like liberals and progressives and like conservatives into their group. Um, Surge FSU, which is the political party I'm a part of, is strictly progressive. So mm. we have that kind of um, ideological difference a little bit between us. But there are still, still a lot of amazing progressives in Forward. Mm. Um, Forward also has the backing of all the frats and sororities. So that's how they win. Because um, on election day, they say, all right, everyone, we're having a meeting, sorority meeting. Get out your phone. Vote for it all the way down. Um, okay. And so that's kind of how they win everything. Gotcha. Um, and so resourceful, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> and also there's a secret organization uh, that was established in the 90s to give one of the football players a Heisman trophy. Um, and so it was a whole campaign. And that organization is called Burning Spear. I've heard of that. Yes. Um, and Burning Spear, they've come more into the light within the past few years because they've kind of been forced to. Um, but it's to, you, it used to be very, very secret. You did, no one knew who was actually in it, um, but they would always back the majority party as well. And huh. with that, they'll induct people and then they'll have lifelong members. They're lifelong members. They have alumni and network. Um, and those are the people that they want making decisions because they won't go against the university administration because mm. the university administration is headed by someone in spear. In There's... fact, all of most of them are all in spear. This sounds like just lobbying in our national government. It sounds like it's just mm -hmm. pe keeping people in office that, you know, are going to agree with you. Right. You know, and finding ways to do that. Wow. Well, let's take a quick break. So true. And then we'll come back and dive into that crazy web of government. Yeah. That's, that's wild. And then end on a hopeful note. Yes, we will. <laughs> we will. The bureaucracy. Be right back, guys. We'd like to take a second to shout out our monthly patrons. Thank you to Aaron B., Christina S., Corbin G., Dan W., Mimi S., and Kareem A. for the continuous support of the podcast. Everything we do on this show wouldn't be possible without the generous support of listeners like you. Consider joining us on Patreon, where for just a dollar a month, you can support the podcast and help us even more in the conversation about active hope. Now, back to the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that wonderful ad you heard. Um, so I would love to talk about your interest in DEI and, and your advocacy for it. Yeah, absolutely. So... Mm -hmm. Um, DEI stands for diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. My first exposure to it, um, was when I was in Senate, one of the first things I did was meet with, um, the college of music's faculty committee on, it was called the idea committee, which is inclusion, diversity, equity, and access. And they did a year long study, um, and survey, and they basically published this whole report on what they can do to improve, um, inclusion, diversity, and equity, and access. Um, and so one of the coolest things about that committee was um, a lot of students were talking about how during recitals you're required to play certain repertoire and um, it's to prepare you for the professional world but all of the composers are white european men um, and those are the only people you can play with or play those are the only pieces you're allowed to play mm -hmm. and um, one of the things that's just so simple that you can allow is just allowing people to play other composers for their concerts like um the pianist scott joplin who like 
you know, founded Ragtime. There's so many different styles that are equally as technically challenging as these composers, but they're just not white. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, especially when music is so subjective, um, it doesn't really make sense for us to kind of stay within these Western confines. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was one of the really cool um, proposals that can actually have real effects, you know, because the only reason why the great composers are the great composers is because we say they are and we keep playing their music over and over and over again. Yeah. And so if we start playing other people's music and start amplifying voices um, from the past that are not white European men, then those voices become more historically relevant. And, um, and that's important because people can see themselves in them. You mm. know, a lot of people, I mean, even like white people in America can't really relate to 18th century, like men, white men. So um, I think it's important that we keep drawing um, voices from the past that reflect our current values and our current um, kind of worldview. Absolutely. So I would love to know what sparked your interest and your passion in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the main things. I think it's just the overall ideals of it are just so good because it's all mm. about kind of decentering whiteness and decentering. Um, I I really feel like it took off after um, summer of twenty twenty when all the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, mm. um, and also with TikTok as well. Just so many ideas are being spread about history and about um, just the current state that just kind of are shocking to a lot of people. And so by centering that um, in conversations, I just think that does so much good. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of companies, like the Fortune 500 companies, like almost every single one of them has diversity, equity, inclusion, um, like offices within their, within their organization because even they realize that when you're inclusive and you have diverse voices, you're more productive because, uh, you know, someone who's lived in the South who might have kind of a you know bigoted point of view isn't going to be able to work with a diverse group of people as well if they don't have that education mm -hmm. you know because there's certain mm. things you're not allowed to say um there's certain things that are like microaggressions or even macroaggressions that you wouldn't necessarily know if you weren't um educated on it and so by educating you know managers and coworkers on this on you know different people's backgrounds you're able to work better together and companies see that they're when they ever, whenever they include diversity of inclusion to their um, office and into their workspace, they see results that are that are more productive and just better overall. So, hmm. something I'd love to ask is, you know, an argument you hear with all of that um, is, you know, people say, "Well, you're making me, you're shaming me for being white. You're shaming me for being a straight man. You're all that." You know, you hear that argument sometimes what would you say to that point i mean i think when i don't know i think a lot of times when people say like oh you're pushing white guilt you're pushing white guilt it's like no we're, we're really just pushing education and the real education that isn't centered around whiteness mm. and there's a difference like also just the fact that regular history is white history and everybody knows that why is it so difficult for you to maybe learn about somebody else's culture when everyone has to learn about ours you know and that's really what it is it's just like they don't want to learn about other people um and that's that really comes out of a place of ignorance 
yeah. um, in mm-hmm. my opinion. So, mm-hmm. and and to that point, I think it's it's important to note that like when it comes to ignorance, it's not necessarily like it's literally just that they they don't know. They mm-hmm. lack the education necessary for it. And but at the same time, like tying into what we're saying, it's almost like this weird American identity tied to whiteness. And I feel like in when you're in a position where there's so much national pride that's oddly tied to the color of your skin, it can, um, which I know that it can, but that also ties to many different cultures around the world who do have many ties to their country based on the color of their skin and everything, you know, but I'm sure that's a, that's the case. But in a nation like America that was literally built on immigration, you know, um, or at least a huge part of which was built on immigration, it's so interesting that that identity is still so heavily rooted. And I'm wondering if I would still, I want to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I, you just briefly mentioned it, like someone living in Southern states. And you mentioned one of the things you were passionate about as well is stigma uh, against or, or for Southern states. I'm not sure. I would love to clarify what you meant uh, by that before, like when you sent the list of passions to mm-hmm. us um, and how that might tie into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the South, um, it's very, it has a very interesting history because just it there is so much racism Mm -hmm. but there also are so many black and brown people that live in the south Mm -hmm. and so when i was talking about the stigma it was mostly stigma of northern states against southern states okay for being quote-unquote backwards and racist and you know i see all these things but when they do that they discount that there's the majority of black and brown people live in the south you know and so it's like when you're when you're saying oh we should just like like people say like we should just bomb the south we should just like cut them off from america like they think oh my like, god yeah and and it's progressives that that say this too they they are very very stigmatized against the south because all they see is a red state and so they see a red state and they think oh this isn't they're not worth it they've been red forever they've been backwards forever when in reality the reason why progressives exist in america is for those very people You know, if you don't have compassion in your heart for Southern people who are suffering under, you know, bigotry and stuff like that, then why are you really even a progressive if you only care about, you know, your state? Um, And so that's kind of what I meant by that. Um, Just discounting all of the diversity in the South, um, Hmm. just to kind of put a big label on them. So, yeah, no, thank you for clarifying. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And with in your with your personal experience with student government and diversity equity and inclusion and the stigma that northern states might have against southern states what is something that you've noticed that you might be able to do about it or something that you noticed that can be done about it uh, yeah absolutely i think just um i think people really need to visit the south um especially there's certain cities that are kind of um labeled as dangerous and like kind of backwards like a lot of cities in alabama like um birmingham and when you look at the city it's like well they're a majority black city so why are you as a northerner wanting not wanting to go there um you huh. know and so it for me it's like you you're saying that there's so much racism in the south but in turn there's a little bit of internalized racism coming from you as well even yeah. if you don't realize it and so i think people just you know i think people traveling um and visiting and talking with people from the south and hearing their lived experiences will really open up their minds um, and eyes because I've, I know a lot of people from the South. I'm from Pensacola. So Mm. um, I've spent a lot of time um, talking with people and, you know, 
a lot of it is just based in ignorance. Like a lot of people mm -hmm. are really, really, really great people, but they just have, they've grown up a certain way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's kind of just unlearning that. Um, and that's why I think colleges are so important because they are unlearning that when they go to college. Yeah. Um, so. Which is that weird tie that I've also, I've, I've had personal experience with that, uh, you know, my parents were fearful and they now in some degrees feel like it's been realized that I went to college and was like brainwashed or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And mm, there's a, there's a fear of that. Yeah. All and, over. and while I, and while I understand what that's like, it's almost like it's also coming from a place of fear in their perspective in a weird way, because I don't feel as though I've been brainwashed in any way. I feel like I was given an education. I have like critical thinking, right? <laughs> yeah. Not that they don't. I feel like that came off insulting, but I'm just saying to your point, very regardless of where they come from and the views that they might carry very nice people they just grew up a certain way they just have to unlearn what they've learned mm -hmm. right and i will say that it is very refreshing to hear this perspective um because i have family who who lives in in south carolina which was the first state to secede from the union you know mm -hmm. in the civil war right um and it's like those you can still see the effects of that when you when you go up there but at the same time it's like they're all nice people, right? And it's just a weird, it's just like part of like the culture there. I don't know. I'm not saying that racism is part of the culture. I'm saying it was like, they just don't realize it. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. To kind of jump in, I think there's so many stereotypes, not just around minority groups, but stereotypes around culture in the United States, just in general. People think that all, you know, all Southerners are racist, like you said. And at the same time, people in the South sometimes are like, oh, those people in the North are just so liberal. Man, a lot of times when I talk about New York, for instance, they're like, oh, man, the taxes there and blah, blah, blah. City's going to shit. And that's not yeah. to say there yeah. aren't problems. It's not to say that there's problems everywhere. But it's, I think it's just so easy for human nature to go straight to all the reasons you don't like these people. Mm -hmm. And from my own experience and from what you're talking about, the majority of the time when you just talk to somebody, even if you don't agree with them, you end up finding that we're all pretty much nice people. Not everybody, but we're all pretty much nice people. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I no, like what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll also say, like, a lot of the pushback against DEI, too, is that they don't like to think that racism is embedded in American society and embedded in American culture. They don't mm -hmm. think it's systemic. And it's crazy because I went to an all-white high school um, and it was a public high school. So it was open to everyone. And when I look into the history, the community that I grew up in and established the suburb of Pensacola, it was established in 1971 right after they desegregated schools. And then they jacked up the prices all in that area so that no black and brown people can buy homes there. And then they all established themselves there. All these like wealthy Pensacola white families moved to Gulf Breeze. And and then that's how the community established. And they, you know, they only sold property to other white people, um, kind of like redlining. And okay, yeah. yeah. And so and then even today, when you look at the effects and you see this A plus school right outside of Pensacola that has all of these like 95% of the people that graduate go to college and it's and I think our school's percentage is like 96% white and when you look at the history to say that it's not rooted in racism and to say that it's not 
systemic it's like kind of crazy like Mm -hmm. how can you not say that you know this community wasn't established and is benefiting off of racism Mm -hmm. you know i think you can see a similar thing in tallahassee just by the student population of like famu and tcc compared to fsu Mm -hmm. you know even just the i mean people that live in tallahassee know there's one side of the railroad track and there's another side of the railroad track and it's like majority of people i don't know what the direction is but on one side it's majority white population on the other side it's majority black population Mm -hmm. and yeah it's clear and i and i wanted to say you know i just find it interesting and because you're so involved in government you know maybe people pose these questions to you sometimes people might think you know calling it racism even though it is what i'm saying is maybe saying that there's embedded racism maybe that makes people feel again some of that shame but Mm. you know in your opinion again if somebody came up to you and was like well why are you calling it racism i'm not racist you know it's just how do you respond to those i mean honestly it's just white fragility like i am a white person and i recognize that i've benefited off of racism i have privilege you know and i had the privilege to go to an a plus high school because you know my parents you know had those opportunities that other people didn't and they were able to purchase a home in an expensive neighborhood that a lot of people can't um and i was going to this high school where i benefited off of you know my whiteness and there's nothing wrong with like saying that you know what i mean Mm. and i think just recognizing that and acknowledging that is kind of the first step to fixing the issues yeah um Mm. I mean, I mean, even in other high schools all across the country, there's AP programs and IB programs. I went to a high school because I've been to a lot of high schools because I was in band. So we would go to different competitions and stuff. But there was high schools that had an AP building and an AP cafeteria. And all of the white students at the school would be in the AP building and the AP cafeteria and the AP areas and then or the IB areas. And then the other half of the school would be in the regular areas and those buildings were not as good their teachers were not as good their test scores were not as good and the reason why they put these programs in the in the college in these high schools because they were failing it'd be an f high school so they said how can we fix this well what if we do we put a lot of money towards a small program and we have a couple kids that do really well on test scores and that'll boost it from an f to a c school Mm. so now it's like these kids are going to a c school some of them are getting amazing educations and then the rest are getting just terrible educations Mm. And then it's actually physically segregated with buildings and schedules and different, literally different cafeterias. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that just exists. And like, and people don't see anything wrong with that. Um, and, and, and I, honestly, when I was in high school, I didn't see anything wrong with that either. Cause I, that was just how, how I thought it was. You didn't realize it. I didn't realize You're it. You're ignorant to it. Exactly. Yeah. And now looking back as someone who, you know, has a more world, like a better worldview, um, I'm able to recognize that that's not that's not right. Um, mm-hmm. These programs and you know teachers and opportunities should be spread to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and you shouldn't white people, you know, unless you're one of the people who's actively voting and perpetuating this, and you have a knowledge of it, and you are still trying to you know put down people of color. I don't think the majority of people are like that. I think the majority of people just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a few people in power that are perpetuating this. Yes. Yeah. And we don't, we're not wrapping up or anything, but I'm glad you said that because I, I think 
you know, this can sound very negative, but the positivity comes from the fact that, at least in my opinion, you know, I don't think anybody's, nobody's trying to shame anybody or make anybody feel bad. It's, it's more just, we're trying to make the world and our country better. And that goes into diversity, equity, and inclusion, mm-hmm. just like you said. Yeah. And also say like a lot of Republicans, like let's say in California, they don't have that there. Their schools aren't like that. So when they're voting for Republicans in office, they they don't keep in mind the the poor people of color that live in the South that are actually affected by racism. But the problem is is that when you let all states have the ability to discriminate, some will mm-hmm. and some won't. And if you live in California and they don't, then good for you. But the reason why we need federal laws is for states like Florida that are gerrymandered and mm. you know they have these people that are you know perpetuating these cycles and the only way to stop that is through you know sometimes federal law that's how it happened with the civil rights movement so Mm. the checks and balances and all that Mm -hmm. and i think this is once again tying into the government when you know when our government was founded one of the first issues they realized was that they needed a stronger central government because all the states were doing different things Mm -hmm. you know and i know that it was many different you know it was like it was a socioeconomic issue on top of a slavery issue and so on and so forth. But I think all the things to say, it's like our government, I, I feel like because of people like you, Cole, our government continues to progress and improve. And I feel like when you look from today back then, I think there's a maybe it wasn't linear improvement, you know, but we have improved. I just think it's so hopeful to tie it all back into the positivity and the hopeful aspect of this conversation. Everything that you've been speaking to so far is so actively hopeful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, and I want to know, I want to hear from your own words how you think your role in, in Senate and your tying in DEI and the uh, stigma of northern states versus southern states. Um, I would just want to know how you think like the actions you've taken to bring in hope like how can these how can your uh, actions in these fields bring hope absolutely i mean i think you know just talking with my peers and even talking with people from other generations as well i mean when i go back home i don't change my point of view i don't change anything about how i feel and so i think that's important is being completely authentic with yourself um especially for being queer um i i came out in eighth grade and just never went back in the closet ever. And, you know, and I live in the 15th most conservative district in the entire United States. So it's, you know, it's one of those things where you, it sometimes feels a little unsafe or sometimes feels a little dangerous to, to be who you are, but that's the only way that we can have change. Um, and I think that's one thing that I will always, you know, try my hardest is just to be authentic to myself and my values and um, meet people where they are too in conversations. I think that's how you can change minds. Mm. So that's awesome. Is there anything you want to let people know about student government plans or initiatives that might be coming? Or I know you're not in office anymore, but yeah, I know we briefly touched on Burning Spear. Um, some good news on that is that the Ford's other party they elected a new student body president and um, vice president and treasurer, and none of them are in Burning Spear. And um, I've met with several of them, and they're actively going to be um, looking into some of the things administration's done financially. Um, so I think there's a lot of positive change from the student government that's going to happen um, within this next year. And then also just on a on a Florida level, I think that this is 
uh, just a phase. I think the Republicans are just trying to gear up for elections. Um, and I think that it's really going to bite them in the butt. So I would be hopeful for the next election cycle as well, because okay. I think I think things are going to be changing soon. Awesome. It is the only constant. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on today. I mean, really, I, I mean, I know I've already thanked you, but truthfully, this has been such a fruitful and positive conversation. And I love it's just so refreshing to have people like you exist and do the things that you do thank and you. to have the courage that you do. Because I know that the decisions that you've made in life, especially just start, starting in eighth grade alone, was hard enough for a grown-ass adult to do. And the amount of courage and fortitude that you have in yourself is very inspiring. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I'll end on this as well. I think community is so important. Um, wherever I've been, I've always had mentors. Um, I've had, when I was in high school, I had older older gay um, students and that were in high school with me that kind of showed me what to do and, and how to be a queer person in the South. And coming to FSU, I've also found community with other gay men as well. And I really don't know where I would be without without them. So, you know, if anyone's listening out there, you know, it's, it's important to connect with, with other people that are like you. So. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Thanks again. And for those of you listening, hopefully... You found some hope today. Thanks for listening to The Only Constant. We show how people use their passions to change the world around them every day. To learn more about our mission, visit OnlyConstantPodcast.com. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at OnlyConstantPodcast to see even more and stay updated with the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Spotify, leaving a review or rating for the podcast helps us learn what's working and what's not. We value your feedback. Hopefully, you found some hope today.